Good morning. Welcome to JSTOP Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. As it's been a few times lately, kind of just feel like talking about Shohei Otani for two hours. For the one guy who said at one point, I'm just trying to make Shohei a thing and it's not actually a thing. Um, he had two home runs yesterday. One after coming out of the game as a pitcher with an injury and then he's still like, nah, I'm good. Here's a home run. The other reason to talk about Shohei is that the Toronto Blue Jays had another frustrating one yesterday. Some good within it, absolutely. Kevin Gosman was electric again, but it was a pretty negative day around the Toronto Blue Jays overall. First, right after we finished up on this show here, Alec Manoa got underway with the Florida Gulf Coast League team and promptly got tattooed. Uh, 11 earned runs over two and two-thirds innings. We'll sort through that throughout the course of the show. It's not anything super new, but the degree to which it looks bad and feels bad is pretty remarkable. 11 earned runs against a complex league team. We'll sort through it throughout the show. That kind of set the tone for what was a bit of a weird day. There was some fun stuff with Brandon Belt um, reuniting with, with some of his old San Francisco teammates and the San Francisco media. There were some positives from John Schneider pregame. Alejandro Kirk could be activated as soon as he's eligible tomorrow. Uh, Zach Pop's getting closer. He's going to throw today down at AAA. Tyler Heineman uh, avoided injury, so no big deal there in what looked like um, a potential issue on Sunday and into Monday, given the lack of catching depth in the organization right now, both AAA catchers are, are on the IL in addition to Kirk uh, and Heineman, of course, already with the major league team. Uh, so there were minor positives like that. Sam Robersa and Yosfer Zulueta get named to the Futures game. But there was the Manoa stuff hanging over everything. There was a lot of Manoa talk and John Schneider's pregame availability. And then, as has happened a little too often in Kevin Gosman starts this year, he comes out. He's awesome. He is mowing down the San Francisco Giants. And he looks up at one point, and it's the start of the fifth inning, and he hasn't allowed a hit yet, and it's a 0-0 game. He gave up one run over six, struck out 12, walked just one, and he took the loss. Can't feel great. I know pitchers' wins and pitcher losses are not something we – put a ton of value in anymore. And we certainly don't blame pitchers for losses or, or credit them solely for wins. Can't feel great for that to happen to Kevin Gosman on a day where he was so, so good. Bullpen allows two more in the ninth, Eric Swanson. And the Jays lose three, nothing. Bo Bichette had a three hit day. That's cool. He's got 10 of those now. It's not even the halfway point of the season. The Blue Jays franchise record is 22. So keep that on your radar. Uh, Paul Molitor back in 1993, had 22. Vernon Wells had 21 the season he led the American League in hits. And John Olerud had 20 uh, in that same 1993 season as Molitor. Bo Bichette, 10 through 80 games. So that's pretty cool. Uh, unfortunately, he was left standing on the bases a couple of times. Jays go one for 12 with runners in scoring position. They strand seven runners. Uh, they had Whit Merrifield caught stealing against uh, a catcher in Patrick Bailey who has just a... If you ever, if you short of JT Real Muto, if you wanted to watch a catcher and see what pop time looks like, it's Patrick Paley. Um, anyway, so more negative than positive there. Jays lose three nothing. Keegan Matheson of MLB.com, of BlueJays.com. He joins us 
to discuss it now. Uh, Keegan, on top of everything else, it was also just really warm and humid at the game yesterday. I imagine that's at the top of your gripe list from yesterday. It was. It was a little, it was smoky too, which almost was enough to trick me into thinking it was fog, which typically makes me happy. But uh, it was a rough one. When you get that dome closed for a bit on a humid day, it's a, a bit of a sauna experience at times, but a, uh, a sauna with 40,000 people you don't know, which is a, a less luxurious experience. I don't know. You could you could sell me on a giant community sauna if that was the intention, but it's a giant community sauna uh, intending to watch a baseball game. Could be like that as well today. Um, there are air quality warnings and things like that. We'll see if the dome's open a little later, but it certainly seems like it will be closed. Now, uh, dome... Open, dome closed, doesn't seem to matter to Kevin Gosman very much. He has another monster game yesterday, 12 strikeouts to one walk. And maybe most notably, Keegan, switches up how he goes about dominating the San Francisco Giants for those six innings. Uh, what stood out to you about, about Gosman's start yesterday? It's fastball yesterday. Because with Gosman, you're always going to think about the splitter. That is one of the best pitches in Major League Baseball and to have that as a starting pitcher is ridiculous. That's an incredible gift he has with a splitter. But what he did with his fastball yesterday, I think nine of those 12 strikeouts on the fastball, a lot of them up in the zone, was pretty special because you're trying to think of longevity here. Anything with the Blue Jays needs to be framed within the context of October and the postseason. And there have been a couple of starts. If you really want to nitpick and get really, really tight with Kevin Gosman, if there's a complaint, it's that a couple of times a year, it seems like a team lays off the splitter and hits him. Well, what he did yesterday is the solution to that, which is to stay one step ahead and attack with his fastball early. So when they were laying off of that splitter down in the zone, Gossman would throw his fastball down in the zone, which if you are looking for that splitter and you get a fastball, you're toast. When they were swinging at the splitter and when he was getting some swings, he would throw that fastball high. And again, when you're looking for one and you get the other, it's over. It really worked for him. You know, this is a guy who can bring it up to 97 pretty consistently. And when you are changing hitters' eye level, when you are changing the speed of their hands and their bat, it's got to be one of the worst experiences as a hitter in Major League Baseball to face Gossman when he has both of those pitches working. Because even the splitter alone, even if you know it is coming, you can end up looking stupid. But when he has both going, not only is it just good, it's plain good, but it allows him to stay maybe one step ahead on those teams who really identify something with the splitter. Because that's been a problem one or two times. We've seen him get hit hard, but this was how he stays ahead of it and stays at this level every outing. He has just been incredible. The Minnesota Twins, obviously the team that, that's been most extreme. I think they have three of the five lowest uh, chase rates against the splitter uh, during Gosman's tenure with the Blue Jays. The Astros have done it a little bit as well, but I thought the Giants were a great example, not only because they're a team that, yes, they strike out a lot, but that's an organization that preaches patience, that preaches taking walks. They have a number of guys in their lineup at career best walk rates right now as part of that philosophy and they know Kevin Gosman really well. If anyone was ready to execute the book on Gosman, it's probably then. He gets not only 11 swinging strikes with that fastball, Keegan, but 11 called strikes. To you, is that is that number, the called strikes with the fastball, the, a, a 
primary indicator to you that he has that fastball splitter combo working? Because to me, that says, yep, you thought it was a splitter or you're trying to lay off the splitter and Gosman's stealing strikes on you with the fastball. Definitely. That is hitters looking for the other thing and seeing that fastball whiz by and thinking, damn, I did not have a chance on that. Probably on a lot of those pitches, they are looking for a splitter. And if you get Gosman's fastball, unless you are really ready to go, don't bother swinging. It's much easier to watch that go by. So important for Gosman to have that. And I, I think one of the more interesting quotes last night was from Gabe Kapler, the Giants manager, pregame, you know, saying that we really know this guy, but at Gosman's level, you can't just assume anything. Now, if Gosman was a 4.5 ERA guy who the Giants knew, sure. You go in and say he's going to throw a high fastball, he's going to throw a slider here, let's hit him. But Kapler said you have to enter a game against Gosman with the first instinct being respect of who he is. You almost have to allow those pitchers to make the first move and adapt as they go because they're so good. If you get out on your front foot, if you are guessing against a Kevin Gosman, against a great pitcher, anyone in Major League Baseball, the great starters, it's a tough place to be in because the great pitchers, and this is Kevin Gosman included, can't just outpitch you, they can outthink you. And I think what you saw last night, Gosman working with his catcher, working with Pete Walker, they had a great plan as well. That was, I think, the best game plan. I know game plans don't excite most people, but they matter. And if something good is happening out there, there's probably a game plan behind it. I think that was the best game plan Gosman has had all year. And look here, let's zoom out a little bit. And, and here's a stat for you, you Keegan. And it's one that's, I don't know, it's pretty striking to me. So Kevin Gosman, we talk about stealing called strikes with that fastball. No pitch in baseball this year has generated more called strikes than Kevin Gosman's fastball. He's got 208 called strikes over 17 starts with that fastball. So an average of more than 10 per start. And... The splitter is fifth in terms of swing and miss for all pitches. So you've got a list of swing and miss that includes like just Spencer Strider ahead of you and then Gosman splitter and your top of the list in terms of uh, stealing called strikes with the fastball. Not stealing. You've earned them, obviously, but I think an element of that is trying to lay off the splitter. By the way, we're going to see Logan Webb tonight. He's second behind Gosman in those called strikes with his sinker. So that'll be uh, an interesting one to develop. See if Gosman can kind of lean over to his hitters and be like, hey, this is uh, this guy does some similar stuff to what I do with him. It's more sinker changeup combo, but he's going to try to sneak strikes over on you in the lower part of the zone. However, Keegan, if I'm Kevin Gosman, I don't know that I'm eager to help my hitters right now. Last year, it was the batting average on balls in play where Kevin Gosman was in historic territory uh, in terms of, you know, being unfortunate and not getting the help behind him. That has rounded the corner this year. He, he's been a beneficiary of some pretty good outfield defense. The Jays are giving him 3.1 runs per game of offensive support. That's the third lowest mark in the entire majors. We know that his teammates really like Kevin Gosman, but the BABIP last year, the run support this year, are you starting to doubt it? There, there's a little bit of la like, this is kind of a consistent lack of support for Gosman here. Yeah, this is a hard life for Gosman at this point. And if you even give him average, slightly below average run support, you're winning almost every game. You are winning 80% of his starts probably easily. But Gosman hasn't gotten anything. Uh, I, I feel like last night's game, I could have taken an old story and put a fresh date <laughs> on it. It's the same thing over and over and over. Gosman has been so good, but 
I think this is indicative of a broader problem for the Blue Jays is that starters, relievers, bulk guys, I don't care who it is on the mound, every inning is stressful. Everything is stressful on these pitchers. And there is a bit of a difference pitching in a one nothing game versus a 10-to-1 game. If you are up big, you can seek out contact. You can throw a couple of fastballs over the edge in a situation where you might be throwing a slider trying to get a swing. It's just a little easier, not just on your arm and your elbow and your shoulder, but on your brain, being able to just relax and breathe as a bullpen or as a starter. The Blue Jays have not given their pitchers many opportunities at all to do that, and Gossman is the poster boy for it. He is annually the poster boy for something you don't want to be a poster boy for, I guess. But it has been a tough run for him, and it's one of these things, again, Blake, that you think will come around eventually, but it's almost July 1st, and I feel like we're saying 20 things will come around eventually. Well, will they all? No. It's the middle of the season, and we have to live in reality with some of these. It's, even though they're based on a, a lot of luck and chance, who you are scoring for on the mound, it's not like the offense looks different on Kevin Gossman days, but eventually these trends just become realities for the season, and Gossman's gotten stuck in a, a couple of rough ones, really, and it's, it's too bad because things like win total should not impact conversations like Cy Young, et cetera, et cetera, but when you see a guy with 16, 18, or 20, sometimes it grabs your eye, and uh, Gossman, again, I think is uh, pitching better than a lot of these numbers look. He sure, he sure is. Uh, he has had six starts where the Jays score two or fewer runs. And now in six of his 10 best starts on the season, he's got an, a no decision. So a uh, tough go there. The other thing that's been a little tough on Gosman, maybe, and this is true of the entire rotation. We have another data point from last night that Kevin Gosman really benefits from an extra day of rest. Now, this isn't, you know, he's been pitching on what is normal rest every fifth day for six of his last seven starts. But when the Jays can find him that extra day and they're trying to do that for Chris Bassett um, this time through the rotation, doing a bullpen day today instead of pushing that to Saturday with Kevin Gosman, the results are, are pretty striking. So when he's on normal rest, he's still OK. He allows a 70 68 OPS, a 512 ERA, a strikeout to walk ratio of about 2.9 to one when he gets that extra day of rest, a 478 OPS, so almost 300 points of OPS almost four runs of ERA and that strikeout to walk ratio explodes to 12.8 to one. So even more extreme than last night's 12 strikeout one walk performance. Obviously you can't, you know, you have a playoff race you're in, you've got to make the postseason. You can't manage Kevin Gosman around that entirely. But when you hear something like that, when, when you see the blue Jays, tweak the the bullpen day here to get Chris Bassett an extra day. Um, have you started to rethink at all? Or even, I, I know we had talked about this before, dig in a little bit on, hey, this four-man rotation thing with the bullpen days, there is going to be a cost on the other guys in your rotation. Oh, this is worrying. I, I think this is a legitimate worry if you're the Blue Jays. And they find themselves in this place because one starter, one starter went down and they had to go to a bullpen day. That's not something you have to do if you have suitable rotation depth. But the Blue Jays just didn't. And they had to immediately go to a bullpen day. That's not a good place to be in depth-wise for an organization. You know, most teams don't have great number six, seven, eight, nine starters, but they at least have someone. And the Blue Jays didn't have someone. 
they were confident in going every single fifth day. So this is a tough spot for the rotation because you need to consider how much you are borrowing from tomorrow to win today. And the Blue Jays are fortunate. They have veterans in these spots with Kikuchi, Barrios, Gosman, and Bassett. But when you ask them about this, the answer is typically, hey, four guys is what we've got. This is how we're going to figure it out, which is you know, the right thing to say. That's being a good teammate. But a lot of these guys could benefit, like you say with those numbers, Blake, from a longer breather, just getting that extra day of rest. Because, again, this is about late September and October. So you can't leave any wins on the table today. That's the tough balance. But, man, if some of these guys run out of gas or run up against the wall a bit later in the season, I'm talking about starters and relievers as well who have had some stressful innings. But that's the, that's the worry here. You are banking on Alec Manoa to come back and be himself. Will that happen? I don't know. You are banking on Hunjin Ryu to come back from Tommy John surgery at his age and be a competent starter in the major leagues. Is that going to happen? I don't know. We'll see. But the Blue Jays needed a few things to go right, rotation depth-wise, whether that be Ricky Tiedemann or a starter coming up, and just hasn't happened. They haven't had any good news on the rotation depth front, and this is where it leaves them, which is a spot where the four current guys are running with it, and I respect the hell out of how they are doing that because they're carrying a heavy load consistently, but that load gets heavier and heavier the, the later we get into the season. So Keegan, I, I mean, we can do the, we'll do the Alec Manoa side of this in a second, but because you mentioned the the org depth in the minor leagues, um, I know you stay up on with MLB pipeline uh, and your own work, the prospects in this Blue Jays system. Um, Paxton Schultz is a guy who got the bump to AAA and, and is, you know, from scouting the stat line looked okay. A couple interesting names at AA. Do you get the sense that, you know, maybe post all-star break, given these concerns you just laid out, the Jays have to look at one of those guys even if it's, you know, on a timeline that maybe they hadn't planned on? It could be getting to that point. Uh, I, I know that the Blue Jays are not typically as aggressive as some other teams who you will see maybe reaching down to a double A, for example, for a top prospect. We haven't seen moves as aggressive as that. But I think even if they are looking to moves like that to some of their upper level pitching depth, it would probably still be in that bulk role pitching in a bullpen game type of situation which can work if you pull it off but like we've seen with this bullpen game it it makes you have to manage your roster day to day are you saving trevor richards a couple of days are you saving bowden francis or mitch white do you use them today it keeps you stuck in that today or tomorrow conversation value wise so the blue jays do have a couple of names coming up i think this will be a much better depth picture naturally next year with a few of these prospects being in triple a but at this point, I think it would still be patchworking, kind of what they're doing now where you are taping two or three guys together and calling it a fifth starter. But, man, oh, man, such an easier conversation if they had have had something work out depth-wise. So the conversation also gets easier maybe if Alec Manoa's FCL start goes a little bit better yesterday. So I know, Keegan, that you you wrote about this at BlueJays.com, kind of a quick take on it. Uh, we spoke to John Schneider about it before the game. For anyone who didn't catch it, Alec Manoa got his first game action after several simulated games. He pitched in the Florida Coast League against primarily teenagers there, and he gave up 11 earned runs over two and two-thirds. Now, I know 
you know, had Alec Manoa gone down there and thrown a perfect game with 27 strikeouts, everyone would have been like, well, you got to understand the context of the league and, you know, the results don't really matter and stuff. And maybe even if he had given up like, I don't know, four earned over four innings or something like that, you could make those same statements. How much do we have, like, it hits a point where the outcome is so extreme, you do have to put some stock into it, even though it is the FCL, right? You do. You absolutely do, and I believe that. It's the, the disclaimers to get out of the way are, yes, it's the FCL. Yes, there's teenagers at the plate and behind Manoa. I'm sure it was not elite defense. And, yes, he's probably working on some specific things. I, I think I had a 1,000 people yesterday tell me, did you know he's working on something? Yes. I'm aware <laughs> how baseball works. Of course he's going to be working on a couple of pitches or a location. You see this in spring training all the time when a guy will randomly throw his change up 50% of the time and we ask, hey, is this a big change? And they say, no, I'm just working on something. That's what goes on down there. But we have to live on planet Earth here. My God, we have to live in reality with this. And I don't think everything can be wiped away and written off. That's understandable in the name of fandom, but it's not something I understand in terms of actually covering a team. And 11 earned runs over two and two-thirds is not the plan. This is not good news. It's not what the Blue Jays had in mind. And I'm not taking it as literally as 11 runs. I think that's the, the best way to frame it. Don't take it as an MLB stat line, but take it to mean that, hey, there's still some time left in this comeback. This is not happening immediately or overnight. And the reason that I, I believe we need to consider it with a bit of reality is that part of this process for Alec Manoa is getting his confidence back and experiencing success again because his confidence and his mentality, as much as his right arm, is what makes him such a good pitcher and what makes him so capable of dealing with Major League Baseball, those ups and downs. So I think that he needs to be experiencing that. The Blue Jays aren't going to throw a guy out and say, hey, just throw middle-middle fastballs and we'll see how that right arm looks. You need to consider his confidence. You need to consider how this looks and the narrative around it because the mental side is so important. So a really tough one for Alec. I still believe in him fully coming back from this, but that's a a real heavy bump to hit on your first one. And I think what it tells us is that if before we had guessed there would be one or two more of these, well, maybe there's two or three or more of these. It's a, a bit of a longer road back and is always going to work on his schedule, you know, the Blue Jays can't force this one because, like I've said from the beginning of this, it has to work. You know, it was so hard to get to the point where the decision was made. This is so unique. I think even in a couple of years, I'll appreciate this more, how unique this situation is right now. But it has to work. And that's the tough part we're looking at right now. It's it's definitely a tough part, and certainly our conversation here is not give up on Alec Manoa or he's suddenly worse than any pitcher in the FCL. For me, it's mostly, uh, you know, I there have been some questions at the text line. There have been some kind of tongue-in-cheek excitement of, oh, he could be lined up for Canada Day or something like that. And it just, the, the timeline seemed too aggressive, especially like you said, when a part of this is seeing success and seeing results and building off of that, whether in your, your lab work or in game-to-game. So I, I think you know, the timeline needs to be recalibrated here. And I wonder Keegan, where you're at in terms of, you know, do you even have a timeline if you're the blue Jays or do you have to 
Because there is a point, and we talked about it a little bit with, you know, calling up a bulk guy or something like that. You could also go outside the organization. You cannot go three more months saying, well, maybe two starts from now, Alec Manoa comes back up. Maybe this isn't it yet, but in terms of timeline recalibration, did the Jays have to be, you know, when it comes to the major league roster, be planning a little later down the line now for Manoa, given that, hey, all the reports were good and first time on the mound didn't look that great. There's still a long way to go here. Yeah, I think they do for, for two reasons. And number one is when you look at Alec Manoa as a player and what he means to the organization. If this was their number 30 prospect who came up at age 26, got hit around, and sent back down, it matters. But you're not talking about your potential ace. You're not talking about a guy who was your opening day starter three months ago. Three months. That is such an important thing to this organization because they could have their homegrown ace for the next three, four, ten years And it is so important to protect that and make sure you get it right, not just for this season, but long-term. You really need to consider 2024, 5, 6, 7 in this conversation and not rush Manoa back because when he comes back, this has to work. He can't come back and have another three or four rough outings and have to be optioned again. That's when this gets really ugly. So I think patience is important here. And that is, uh, you know, that's where that word process comes into play. I, I, I still don't know what that word means, frankly, <laughs> in baseball. But th- this is where you try to ignore the needs and wants and desires of today and think about the big picture. But the second reason I, I think this for Manoa is that you know, going out and getting another arm could be important and should be important because if one of these other four starters – knock on wood for the Blue Jays, misses a day or misses more, what do you do at this point? The Blue Jays were the last team in MLB to need a sixth starter, to need their next guy. They have been very fortunate. But this work, this rotation story has carried a very heavy workload, a heavy load along the way. And if you need to go one step deeper in your depth, then it gets scary. And that's what the Blue Jays need to protect against. Eventually, Ryu will be back. Maybe Manoa is back eventually, but even in those situations, I think you need a veteran guy who can step in and not dominate, but man, give you five, six innings with a 4.5 ERA. That would be valuable in its own right at this point. Can they not just do what the Giants are doing with Trevor Richards and start Ryan Walker every day? Is that not, every is that, yeah, I mean, tw- have a guy throwing off of his shoe tops coming behind him and having, I, I feel like every ball was thrown from a, uh, drastically different place yesterday that's kind of the uh, dream giant setup it is uh it's pretty remarkable to look at even you know if you fire up a baseball savant release points uh graph for for different teams and stuff like that like john schneider's not joking that they are weird looks and they are throwing from all over the place and even alex wood with that like he has not been particularly good, but he does the, hey, I'm going to pitch really fast with this kind of whippy action. And he's like on the mound before the previous inning ends. Um, so a, a good mix of things there. Um, Blue Jays bullpen day today. They haven't told us who they're going to lead with here. I, I'd assume it's Trevor Richards again, given what we've seen. Um, do you have any thought on, on how the Jays have managed bullpen days so far and how today could look similarly or or the same with I think just about everyone available. Yeah, I would bet on a Trevor Richards. And the reality of needing to do these days 
is not good, but since you have to do them, the actual practice, I think, has been okay. You know, Trevor Richards, credit to him. You know, he's a guy who has started in the past and who is fully embracing this role of put me wherever. And that is, you know, this is a new phenomenon in Major League Baseball. These bullpen days, these bulk games, I guess, bullpen days with bulk guys where you're not just piecing it together, but you have a pretty clear strategy. You want two or three from Richards. You want two or three from your next bulk guy. The Blue Jays have made it work a couple of times. Trevor Richards has been very good in this role. He knows how to start. That changeup is so good. Even if he throws it 99% of the time, it still works. And he's been such an important piece of this. I, mean, I, I did not expect him to be such a crucial part of this bullpen. But again, credit to him. He's done it. And it's those middle innings. I think it's that bridge from maybe the late third inning, four, five, six, which is really important here. In a perfect world, you have a fresh Nate Pearson for two innings. I don't know if that'll be the case. But getting through those bridge, that second time through the lineup, I think is where this can either go well or go poorly. So that's up to that Bowden Francis, Mitch White, Trent Thornton sort of group there. And uh, again, not a plan A, not even a plan B, I don't think at this point. But if you're going to do it, do it right. And it's at least lined up okay, bullpen-wise, with them all being fresh. And hey, maybe you could also score some runs. That would probably go a a little bit of a way uh, to helping you out there. Keegan Matheson, thanks so much for taking the time out, man. I'll see you down at the park a little later. You got it, buddy. See you there. Keegan Matheson of BlueJays.com, of MLB.com. A note on the hitter side that we didn't quite get to, but yes, in related to how comically different some of those pitchers look and the Rodgers twins being absolute polar opposites, even though they're identical twins. Um, The Jays have two of just five games in Major League Baseball this year where a team struck out zero or one times. They also now have one of the highest strikeout games, striking out 17 times yesterday. It's a season high for them. They had zero walks. Um, you know, I, I think this is obviously easier said than done, but against the team that's that funky and that maybe you're going to have some trouble bat the ball with, especially as the game's progressing, might be a spot to start getting pretty selective and try to grind things out. Um, that's especially true as the series goes on and they'll be a little deeper into their bullpen. They are, by the way, um, currently penciled to also bullpen day at tomorrow. We'll see old friend Ross striplings off the IL. Now um, they could get a fresh arm because they're carrying 14 position players right now to just 12 pitchers. Uh, we'll see what exactly is going on with all this San Francisco strategy after the break, when we talk to Susan Slusser of the San Francisco Chronicle. That's next on Jay's Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan and Sports at 360. The most opinionated Maple Leaf show out there. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That is, of course, the walk-up music of Brandon Belt, who was Mr. Popular yesterday. The San Francisco Giants in town, which is a bit of a rarity. He gets to catch up with his former teammates. He gets to catch up with former reporters who are around him a bunch. He gets to chop it up and hold court to be the mayor slash the captain slash the MVP uh, for the day. Someone who's gotten to know Brandon Belt a little bit, got to be a part of the fun yesterday. Susan Slusser, the San Francisco Chronicle. Good morning. How are you? I'm great, Blake. How are you? I am doing well. Um, your impressions on Brandon Belt kind of taking things over pregame yesterday and doing 
I don't know. Is he getting ready for a, a stand-up night, working on his, like, tight five? That seemed uh, very joke-heavy and a little lighter on, you know, actual catching up on the baseball side. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what we expect from Brandon Belt. It's one of the reasons, you know, I think everyone in San Francisco who, you know, followed him for his 12 seasons there knows he's – He's a guy who's not going to take himself too seriously. It's been funny kind of watching, you know, the reactions from another part of, uh, you know, the the continent react to Brandon and kind of get to know that he, he really is not serious with some of the preposterous things mm-hmm. he says. We all think he's hysterical. I think he, you know, he was basically playing to the crowd that knows him yesterday. Um, but he does like taking little shots. Uh, at his friends, which he did pretty liberally. Um, and, of course, we all thought that that was absolutely hilarious, you know, about wanting to embarrass Logan Webb and his family. So he gets he gets that chance today. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> Smart. We'll, we'll see if the, if the actions match the words. Smart of him to uh, tread lightly with Camilo Duvall, though, just uh, just in case that matchup came up. Um, so exactly, he, he did spend 12 years there. He won a couple of rings. Um, you know, it, it seemed like there was at least the possibility he could be back there. I, I know he talked about you know the health of his knee and whether he would feel like he's ready to play the Giants go down the path of, hey, there's Jock Peterson, there's Lamont Wade Jr., there's Michael Conforto. Um, there are other pe- pieces in that place, but. How close do you think Brandon Belt was to staying and what would that have meant to, to him and the Giants to continue that relationship? You know, not a guy that has franchise records and things like that, but the longevity is, is pretty rare, especially when you mix a couple rings in there. Yeah, I mean, I, certainly the, the Giants franchise absolutely loves him from top to bottom. Uh, there's no doubt. I think that they were looking at things this year, and it's been evident by, you know, just a quick look at their roster now, that this was a year they were going to start to go younger. I really think if it had not been for that 107-win season in 21, they probably would have started the process even earlier, and they might not have given Bell the qualifying offer after that 21 season. Um, I I think they would have loved to have had him back maybe on a minor league deal with a very nice major league portion of the contract because he'd had so many knee issues, including last year. I think they just felt like, you know, they didn't want to maybe go through that again. Plus Lamont Wade, who has become very close to Belt and worked a lot with Belt to become a much better first baseman and is. They knew he could handle that position, and I think they were also kind of thinking Jock Peterson might be a guy they have to put there. He's played a little bit uh, there uh, in practice. He's worked out there. He hasn't quite been there, but I think they felt like they, they were probably set at first. Yeah, they also, you know, you can only have so much personality, and if Party Rock Jock is going to be in the mix and stuff too, you got to uh, you got to keep some space. So, I, I mean, you mentioned Lamont Wade kind of getting close with Brandon Belt, and I think you know one thing that that's pretty clear Brandon Belt can help guys with is that approach at the plate. And Brandon Belt, you know, among the lowest chase rates in all of baseball this year, still strikes out a ton, but but a good idea of you know, what is a ball? What is a strike? And that's kind of become a staple of this Giants team. Um, why have the Giants been able to to do that so well? Because it's something I, I'm sure every team would love their guys to walk more and be more disciplined. The Giants seem to have struck this balance of, yeah, we'll strike out a little bit, but there are a lot of really quality plate appearances within that, especially at the top of this lineup. 
I mean, that that's really what they preached. They uh, they were preaching it last year. They weren't really just executing it quite as well. Um, but Lamont Wade has helped because, you know, he's, he's batting leadoff. He kind of sets the tone. He's had a lot of long at-bats, not necessarily last night against Gosman. Mm. He was the one guy that Gosman really seemed to have a handle on. Uh, uh, you know, first time somebody struck him out three times this season, uh, a starting pitcher. So, um but, yeah, I think it kind of trickles down. Josh Peterson's always had great at-bats. You know, he's a he's a guy who will work counts. And then the young guys have come up and have seen that. The one uh, rookie who's come up pretty heralded third baseman, Casey Schmidt, uh, he's been riding the pine here for a while because he's too much of a free swinger. Uh, he's very aggressive. They don't want him to lose the aggressiveness. They just want him to be a little more selective. He's getting better, but I think everybody kind of looks and goes like, man, that kid came up, made a big splash, uh, and now he's <laughs> he is not getting the playing time he was, and that's in large part because of the strikeouts. Yeah, and Schmidt, you know, it was a little curious. I almost thought that he might go down instead of Isan Diaz this this week when when the Giants made that um, you know the roster move uh, with to activate Wilmer Flores the other day, just because yeah, you have a prospect and he hasn't had a plate appearance uh, in a week, so I, I, I can understand you know wanting to drive that home. I'd imagine on the other end of things, a prospect that they've got to be pretty happy with the approach for it and have to be pretty excited about is Luis Matos. He's kind of the, you know, I I know that that probably comes naturally to him because you don't walk into rookie ball with a 5% strikeout rate uh, without it. But this is someone who struck out at a bottom 10 rate in all of the minor leagues. And early on here in the majors at just 21 seems to have a pretty good approach. How excited are the giants about Matos long-term? Extremely. I mean, I I think this is a guy who has potential all-star uh, capability in the future, uh, you know, so many skills, uh, and he's just getting better. We've seen that all along. Um, Matos, like Patrick Bailey, has been, I think, better than expected. You, you expect more of an adjustment. The, the at-bats are really mature. You talk about guys who are selective. Uh, he has really shown a good eye, very smart hitter. Um, both he and Bailey are hitting, I think, more than expected initially. Uh, and um, just a, it's just very calm, kind of like a, almost a veteran presence and not in an obnoxious like, yeah, I belong here kind of way, just a knows what he's doing, very confident kid. Uh, I, I think the Giants are thrilled because losing Mitch Hanniger, you know, for up to maybe three months, uh, they're hopeful it'll be a much shorter time. Uh, but that that's a huge blow. He was their biggest offseason acquisition. And Matos has come in, and honestly, he's playing better than, than Hanneker did at any point. It's It's been pretty fun uh, to see from afar. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting what he's been able to do at such a young age. Um, so those are things that the, the Giants are doing on the hitting side. They're just as fascinating on the pitching side where right now they're running basically two starters in Logan Webb and Anthony DeScalfani. Um, you know, Logan Webb is going to start today, but this heavy use of opener or bullpen days or bulk guys, however you want to phrase it, the Giants are 10 and three now in those bull, quote unquote bullpen day games or opener games. How has this been so effective? Because on paper, it should not be something, you know, it's supposed to be, Initially, I think more how the Jays are using it, which is when you're in triage mode, an emergency situation, the Giants have used it to maybe the the strongest effect at this side of the Tampa Bay Rays. Why has it been so effective for them? 
Yeah, I honestly, I, I think that they're doing it even more than, than the Rays were when the Rays first instituted it. That was like you're talking about a little bit triage and, now, you know, a little bit like maybe they weren't all that uh, excited about their fifth starter options. But the Giants have six starters in their pen right now. Um, Alex Wood coming out as the, the bolt guy yesterday was really a surprise. I'm not sure <laughs> how on board he is with that long term. But, you know, they've got Sean Manaya out there. That Ross Stripling is probably out there. Uh, they still have not said who will be starting tomorrow. It's possible it's Ryan Walker yet again. This kid seems to be a pitch in almost every game and be the opener every other day. Uh, and he's been, as you guys saw last night, very good, even after, you know, gives up two hits to start things off and strikes out the next three guys. Um, that that helps uh, alone. But honestly, that's the best Woods looked all year long. Um, so that might wind up being a spot for him, too. Manaya has pitched pretty well there. Um, Stripling, his results have been erratic at best. So maybe they feel like that's the best way to use him. And, uh, you know, Jacob Junis is usually a starter. Uh, and then they got a bunch of rookies out there who are usually starters, Tristan Beck, uh, Keaton Wynn. So they've got a lot of links out there. But at some point you think, do these guys earn the right, uh, especially somebody like Beck, who's mostly been very good, Keaton Wynn, very good, Sean and I are mostly pretty good. Do they earn the right to start, or do they just keep going with this opener thing? Among other things, it takes somebody like, Ryan Walker out of the equation for later in the game when you might want him in a more high leverage situation. So it's really been fascinating to watch so far. It's working last night was as well as you can run a bullpen game. I mean, absolutely, but it can look bad when it goes wrong. So we'll see. Yeah, we will. And, you know, there's obviously you don't manage your team by the payroll because you've got to win the games and, you know, judge it on, on merit to some degree. But Alex Wood, Sean Mania, Ross Stripling all make $12.5 million. So uh, I don't know how much they love having $37.5 million tied up in bulk guys as well. Um, the Ross Stripling thing, he, it has not gone super well for him, I, I know he's dealt with some back stuff and he's kind of, he started a little bit. He's come out of the pen a little bit. Um, he's a guy that, I mean, he was very well liked here because he over delivered to such a strong degree, really saved the rotation at times last year, switching from that long reliever role to a starter role. Is there still hope in San Francisco that he will return to a starting spot or is he kind of in the Mania Junis category of we're just going to use them like this and kind of figure it out on the fly? I, I mean, I think they absolutely believe in Ross Stripling, and there are a few teams that are better at getting the most out of sort of veteran starters uh, than the Giants are. And I think Stripling came in, and he's a guy they had specific ideas for when they signed him, uh, and one was to sort of change his changeup. And they did. He was not comfortable with it. And I think some of his early season results showed that. He kind of ditched that. It, it's still in the repertoire. Um, he kind of has two change-ups, but uh, I think he was a little better once he did that. And then he had the back problem. So, uh, but yeah, I do think right now uh, guys are going to be sort of bulk innings guys until they really show consistent results. Uh, Kapler said last night in regards to Wood, who, you know, obviously was terrific last night. Uh, it's going to be kind of a, a reevaluate every time out situation is that incentive for guys to keep pitching well they've got all the incentive in the world already of course uh 
um, but they will need to perform to get the right to start, I presume. That seems to be the message. So if Stripling gets it together, and I think the Giants feel like he will, he could be back in the rotation. I don't think that there's anything that's going to be set with this team at all other than Logan Webb is definitely a starter. Alex Cobb, when he's on the roster, is definitely a starter. Di Sclafani probably Otherwise, it's a fluid situation, man. It's all hands on deck. It sure seems like it. And Logan Webb, obviously a homegrown guy who's still fairly controllable and not all that expensive. Alex Cobb just making uh, $10 million. When you look at, you know, especially a day after a Kevin Gosman start where Gosman got a very large deal from the Toronto Blue Jays to, to leave the Giants. And, and you see how the Giants have approached starting pitching in the free agent market, um, you know, like I just mentioned, a lot of guys making twelve point five million, a couple guys making ten million. Is is that like just the way that the last two off seasons has work, have worked out, or is there an organizational belief here and just kind of pooling that starting pitching risk over a couple of you know middle tier guys versus investing long term in a Gosman type? I, I think it's a little bit of both. I think it depends on the market and then the current need. Um, you know, I, I suspect in the next few years with some of these young starters they have coming that they really like a lot. I mentioned Beck. I mentioned Wynn. And, of course, they've got Kyle Harrison, who's their top prospect, who's probably going to be up before the end of the season or the very least September. Uh, maybe they – they um, wind up signing a few fewer of these sort of – mid-veteran range sort of starters, but I think they'll still keep doing it here and there. Uh, They really do have a good idea. I'm sure there are very specific guys they target, people coming off of injuries and stuff they've always liked, or somebody whose pitch usage they might tinker with and they feel like they could really help them excel that way, or, you know, the age-old, we can fix that guy because we see this flaw in his delivery uh but they're they're i think they're probably moving away from that a little bit and then here in the next few years they could have a pretty homegrown rotation uh in a in just another season or two and gosman was a great example of exactly what you just said hey you're coming off of a, a yeah. bad year a dfa you're in atlanta let's help you work on the splitter and let's uh you know become help you become the best version of you we get a little buy low value out of it and then you'll be on your way when you get expensive um last one for you susan when, when you saw kevin gosman yesterday and he has the quality of start that he does six innings with only one earned um, and you look up it's 12 strikeouts and it's almost all with the fastball instead of the splitter did you get a kick out of that a little bit him kind of hey my former team I'm going to flip the scouting reports script on them a little bit yeah I, I think everybody kind of got a kick out of that. I don't think anybody was surprised though you know I mm-hmm. think they know him well enough to know we're probably going to see a, a little bit of a change here uh, I think he also kind of wanted to challenge some guys. Uh, it was fascinating. You know, obviously he, I, you know, they, he, the Giants don't get a hit until the fifth inning, uh, but they were making him work um, and they get him out of the game after six. Uh, I think they feel like that's a win when he's on to that extent, but it shows, man, that guy's talent is off the charts. You know, he's got three outstanding pitches and, he can use any of them to dominate a game. So that was really fun to see. <laughs> Everybody in San Francisco loves Kevin Gosman. The hair, I, I'm still <laughs> a little on the, you know, it's, I was like, I, I saw him and said a quick hi to him. You're not supposed to talk to starters on the day of, but he said hi to me first. But I was like, wow, the hair, that is something else. Uh, I, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm 
still I, I'm still on the fence about the hair. I'm I I'm there with it, but that's the only Kevin Gosman we've we've known here, really. So um, you know, maybe maybe it's just the the shock of the change for you, Susan Slusser of the San Francisco Chronicle. Thanks so much for taking the time out. See you at the park a little later. Sounds great. Thanks, Blake. Susan Slusser, San Francisco Chronicle, uh, fun San Francisco side to this series. She mentioned that. Logan Webb is the one guy who, yeah, of course, he's going to be uh, a starter if he's healthy because he's been terrific. This is a homegrown guy, a fourth-round pick back in 2014. Made his major league debut in 2019. A little bit of trouble that year, a little bit of trouble in in the pandemic-shortened season. He has been unbelievable since then. ERAs of 303, 290, and 316 The last three seasons, he's been among the league leaders in total innings pitch since the start of the 2021 season. He does not walk anybody. And if you're talking about ways to raise your floor and limit the downside um, as someone who doesn't miss a ton of bats, well, there are two really good ways to do that. There are three. One is just to play in San Francisco. That he didn't really have a lot of control over, but that's a good one too. Um, The other is don't walk anyone. He has a 5% walk rate, which is among the very lowest in baseball. And the other one is, hey, if you're not playing at San Francisco, if you're in a hitter's park, if you're going to Colorado a couple times a year in San Francisco, um, having a ground ball rate above 60% also pretty darn good. It is hard to put a charge into into a ball in the air against Logan Webb. We'll see how that goes today. Um, Generally, if there's hard contact off of him, and there's not very much, there's a little bit more this year than than prior years, but there's not a ton. If there is, it stays on the ground. That's been a challenge for some of the Blue Jays in general, so this will be an interesting one to watch tonight. Excited to be on the call again with Ben Wagner, uh, as I was last night and will be tomorrow as well. Also on the call, returning to the call for this series, Dan Schulman. Fresh off of uh, a couple series off. He was back in the booth last night. He joins us next on Jay's Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan and Sports at 360. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. I'm on a streak of when Dan Schulman joins the show. I pick music specifically for him, but then I forget that he's not joining us right at the top, so he won't get to hear it. He's going to join us in a couple minutes, and he will just have to have he will just have to have felt that I played some ELO for him uh, on the way in. It's usually a meatloaf choice, but mix it up. A little ELO today. Um, yesterday was so Dan Schulman joins us in a, in a couple minutes here. Yesterday was a day that the Blue Jays scored zero runs and went one for 12 with runners in scoring position. So naturally, yes, the text line and Jay's talk last night were full of the usuals. Um, Vlad only hits in garbage time, which doesn't make a lot of sense given what happened on the weekend. They only hit against bad teams, which, I mean, they've been way better against bad teams. Okay. Every team in baseball is better against bad teams than good teams. That's how the bad teams end up bad and the good teams end up good. Uh, That's what it is. Fire the hitting coach. Sure. Victor Martinez, by all accounts, doesn't want to be a full-time hitting coach. I don't know that Vlad's uncle is changing anything. Look, I'm not dismissing these things as um, things that could help, but 
I don't know that we need to do a text line segment on it every single time the Jays have a bad day at the plate. Now, zoom out, and the Jays have had a bad season at the plate with runners in scoring position. It's getting pretty frustrating to talk about because, you know, we can talk to analytics people. We can talk to people with the Toronto Blue Jays. We can talk to ex-managers like Bobby Valentine who, you know, are analytic friendly, but, you know, more traditional and old school. And across the board, all of those people say, well, hitting with runners in scoring position is basically the same as hitting generally. There isn't a lot of evidence that over a larger sample teams or players have, you know, an ability to do it better this way an ability to do it worse this way. It's a little different on the pitcher side because you're pitching out of the stretch and trying to control the run game and things like that. But on the hitting side, most people seem to believe that you'll eventually be as good as you are in those situations. The Jays have not. They are a top five offense in most situations, and then they are a bottom five or six offense with runners in scoring position. They're down to hitting 237 with men in scoring position on the season. That is 25th in baseball. It remains an issue. I don't know that it's a, I, I don't know that it's anything other than have the patience and hope it turns around. I can certainly understand um, the theories that when it's been an issue for long enough and when you're struggling to score runs, that you grip the bat a little tighter or you press a little bit, you expand the zone hoping to do something. And I think at the individual level, uh, you certainly see that at times from guys. Yesterday was particularly frustrating because the Jays put a lot of guys in scoring position early in innings. They led the game off with a ground rule double from George Springer and then one of Bo Bichette's three hits. That wasn't able to score George Springer because it was uh, kind of a soft looping liner that, that Springer had to hold at second on. They had two other instances where they had a man at least on second base with one out or fewer, and they weren't able to uh, get him across. Now, one of those was against Tyler Rogers, and you get that weirdo contact with the, it hits the grass and takes off in a different direction because of the bizarro way that that slider comes in out of his submarine uh, righty on righty, and it almost looks like it's rising, like kind of a like a fast pitch pitch almost. Um, yes, these are my hand motions um, on the radio show. Uh, so that you can understand all that, but it is three It's halfway into the season. They are, after tonight, it'll be the exact halfway mark of the season. And you don't love that that is still a talking point. So if this is going to turn around, if you're going to buy that long enough sample and it'll round out and it looked like it was there for a second, uh, you would really like to see that Sooner than later. Um, Bo Bichette did his part yesterday. He had three hits. little update on where Bo's at right now. So that was his 10th three-hit game of the season. It's the halfway mark. So he's on pace for 20. The franchise record is 22. That was Paul Molitor back in 1993. Um, also, he's also only one off Luis Arise and Ronald Acuna Jr. for the league lead. It's his 32nd multi-hit game. Of the season, he's just one back of Luis Arise there as well. The Jays' record is 65. Tony Fernandez and Vernon Wells uh, both did that. So um, he's a little off the pace on that one, but not far off. He's also on pace right now to set a Blue Jays franchise record in hits. Uh, that record is held by Vernon Wells, who had 215 back in 2003. Bobachek currently on pace for 218, which is pretty good. He's putting together one of the better offensive seasons, especially from a, a contact hitting perspective that we've seen from the Blue Jays. Uh, Dan Schulman's seen a lot of Blue Jays baseball over the years. Maybe he can help us contextualize Kevin Gosman's start on the mound, Bo Bichette's start at the plate. Dan Schulman of Sportsnet, how are you? 
I'm doing great. I, I, I'm in, I feel I'm in a good spot. I, I'm hitting after Susan Slusser and before Eno Saris. I'm just going to, I'm going to slide in there, get overlooked. Maybe somebody will give me a cookie. <laughs> Station to station. That's it. We'll just go, That's right. you know, put it, put bat to ball and we'll keep it going. Um, before keep we get into some of the, sorry, go ahead. Keep the line moving past the baton, right? Exactly. In a yeah. way that we wish the Blue Jays uh, could. Dan, I know that we've talked about it a bunch. Um, the fact that it's halfway into the season and I mean, I was on the radio broadcast, so I didn't hear your call last night, but I'd imagine the inability to hit with runners in scoring position, the the rate at which the Blue Jays are stranding guys on base, this still being a talking point, does concern start to set in for you at some point that, you know, we hear a lot about how numbers with runners in scoring position, execution with runners in scoring position, it's mostly just noise early in the season, and eventually you'll hit as well in those situations as you do generally. The fact that it's been half a season and it hasn't really come around, does that concern you at all yet? Yeah, uh, honestly it does on a couple of levels. One is, yes, it can normalize, and it probably will, but it hasn't normalized after 20 or 40 or 60 or 80 games. And meanwhile, they're losing some games because of it. They're 43 and 37. And even if they were an average team in this department, just average, instead of 43 and 37, I don't know how you feel. I think they'd have three, four, five more wins or something like that. Um, I, I've often said on the air, sometimes when you hit is as important or more important than how much you hit. And, and you know, look at the Giants last night. They got that one big hit of the ninth inning that kind of, you know, turned a one nothing game into a three nothing game and made it easy. I, I'm, it, it's it's unfortunate that we all have to keep talking about it so much. I'm sure for the players, it's unfortunate that they have to keep hearing about it so much. And it, it's you know, it's odd. I, I keep trying to find different ways to say it. Like, oh, they've got eight hits and five of them are doubles. But they haven't been able to score. You know, it, it's it's almost like avoiding the term no hitter. I'm trying <laughs> almost to avoid the term runners in scoring position. Because, you know, if we were playing a drinking game on that, we'd all be plastered by now, you know, because we've all talked about it so much. But, yeah, in the meantime, until it normalizes, some games that should have been won are lost, and they count. The standings are real. And the other thing I would imagine, again, with, with the players being acutely aware of this, you know, you can't try harder in baseball. And are they trying harder to do this kind of thing? And does that make it even harder to do it well? Dan, to give you some, con- I can't quantify exactly how many wins because we'd have to go back through the situations and when would those hits come, etc. But had they just hit at the average they hit in other situations, they'd have an additional 19 or 20 hits with runners in scoring position. You think about over 80 games, that's once every four, you know, one extra hit with runners in scoring position every four games, you know, maybe, and then there's also the, of course, in baseball, the cascading effect of, okay, well then that inning continues and, and you get a higher pitch count on the pitcher and maybe you wear out the bullpen a little bit more. Um, so I can't tell you in wins, but I could tell you they, they'd have a few more than 43. Uh, certainly one guy who hasn't really struggled in those spots is Bo Bichette. I mentioned it before you came on with another three hit day yesterday. He might threaten the franchise records for three hit games and multi hit games. And he is currently on pace to break the blue Jays franchise record for hits in a season. He's on pace for 218 right now, which would just nudge Vernon Wells 2003 uh, total. You've seen a lot of baseball in your time. And I know Louisa rise is doing the Louisa rise thing right now. Ronald Acuna jr. Also having a pretty elite batting average season, but how special is what Bo's been able to put together here over a half season? 
Very. I mean, those three guys are three very different players and special in very different ways, obviously, as you well know. But, you know, what he is doing, what I believe right now, that other teams come in to play the Blue Jays and they sit down with their pitchers and they have a meeting about the Blue Jay lineup. And I think Bo Bichette is the guy who's generating the most conversation right now. More than Vladdy, more than Springer, more than Chapman, whoever. So, um, and, and I said to Buck on the air last night after the second, like the first hit was ridiculous. Hmm. The ball was a foot off the plate. Um, and Bo's not 6'6". You know, he's six foot, and yet he can reach a ball a foot off the plate and make contact with it. Then he hits um, the double, I think it was in the second at bat, right? He hit the double in the second at bat, and I turned to Buck on the air and I said, how do you pitch this guy? Like with most guys, you say, okay, he's susceptible to velocity up, or he's susceptible down and away. or the... But with Bo, I don't think there's any rhyme or reason or pattern or consistency. Oh, he missed that pitch this time. Let's throw him that pitch again. I just think his hand-eye coordination and his, you know, unbelievable natural ability in putting the bat on the ball makes him kind of susceptible to being pitched the same way over and over again like other hitters. Um, If you told me he'll win multiple batting titles, I think that's possible. If you told me he'll have 200 hits multiple times, that's very possible given how healthy he is, where he hits in the lineup, and the fact that he doesn't walk very much. I'll give you a crazy one, and I'm not really a hyperbole kind of guy, and he's only 25 years old. If you told me he'd wind up with 3,000 hits in his career, I might buy in on that one. And that's a long way away, and that's a lot of hits. But he's the kind of guy who year after year after year can put up these kinds of numbers, can hit over 300, can get 200 hits, um, and can be a plus-plus offensive player. And he's doing it at a premium defensive position. I think we'd all agree his defense is better this year, um, significantly better than it's been the last two years. I mean, when you look at the whole package right now, it, it's it's awfully impressive. And I think, and I think he still thinks there's even a little bit more there that he's still learning, still growing that that sort of thing. What what he's done from September last year through today has really been impressive. It has, and you mentioned the improved shortstop defense, which, you know, the numbers try to capture as well. You look at something like wins above replacement just to kind of check in at the halfway point, right? See where things stack up. He's probably got a case to be in the top five on a lot of American League MVP ballots. I think we can pretty much lock in, barring injury, who the MVP is right now uh, in the American League. 28 home runs, 11 stolen bases, 300 batting average, and also a starting pitcher. But it's going to be pretty interesting to see how, you know, Wander Franco, Luis Robert, um, how names like that, along with Bo Bichette, Jose Ramirez, uh, how that all shakes out because Bo Bichette's right there in the conversation. And yeah, you're not, I don't think you're crazy for the 3,000 hit thing because I crunched the numbers a couple days ago on what that would look like. Now, you know, he's 25 and just the offensive environment in baseball doesn't allow you to have like 750 plate appearance seasons anymore. So it could be tight, but like, He's on pace for 218 hits. You don't have to, I mean, you have to be great for a long time to do that, but that's not, it's not like he has to unlock uh, another level entirely. So that's Bo Bichette. And I think we've all been pretty impressed with him over the course of the season. He, other than that one, I don't know, it was a 20 game dip, I think where he didn't really take any walks. And because of that, you know, you're, you're prone to the floor is not quite as high when you slump, but the bat, the ball there is, is just so strong. He's been probably the most consistent bright spot. I know you weren't on the calls on the weekend, Dan, but Vlad showing that little bit of, 
burst over the course of Friday, Saturday, Sunday, um, maybe wasn't there yesterday. And I know, you know, your broadcast partner, Joe Siddle has some questions still about where Vlad is at. Do you see that coming around with Vladimir Guerrero Jr.? Do you still see need to see a little bit more before we start thinking that way? Uh, I still think I need to see more. I mean, Vlad, two years ago, I don't, I, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but he, uh, let's say he was around a 1,000 OBS guy, right? And, and this year, uh, right now, he's around an 800 OBS guy. Uh, I think 800 is kind of his floor, which is crazy. That tells you how good he is, right? But, um, the, you know, the, obviously in 2021, Dunedin and Buffalo gave him a bit of a boost. Uh, it's undeniable. So, if you back off the 1,000 a little bit and say, okay, 950, 925, or something like that, to me, Vlad should be a 900 OPS guy, not an 800 OPS guy. Like, it, 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 all the numbers should be a little bit better than they are. I don't consistently see the approach that I saw in April. In April, to me, he looked great. It felt like he was laying off pitches. It felt like he was willing to take a walk. It felt like he wasn't trying to hit home runs. It felt like he wasn't trying to pull the ball. Uh, And I agree with those who are smarter than me and do great breakdowns and threads and stories and all that. Um, He looks a little bit different to me. He looks like, you know, maybe for a while he hasn't homered at home or he's only hit one home run off a non-position player in the last month, you know, all that stuff. Uh, Again, these guys are human. And it looked to me like maybe he was saying, okay, got to try to hit home runs. That's what they want. Got to try to hit home runs. And I don't think that who that I don't think that's who Vladdy naturally is. I think he's a guy who hits rockets, and sometimes they go out, sometimes they don't. Now you got to keep him off the ground more often, uh, you know, than he does at times. But I still don't. I, I don't have that same feeling about him right now, Blake, that I did in April or that I did in 2021. He's still very good, and he can still be great. And I hope he's great in the second half. And I, and I saw a lot of the Oakland at bats and there were some great takes and great process uh, in those series. And, and, you know, maybe he'll get back to it tonight. Um, But I, I I guess I still need to see a little more of a sustained run like that before I start thinking it's going to be a huge second half for him. And this might be me trying to subconsciously reverse jinx this, but I don't know if tonight with Logan Webb and his 61% ground ball rate and, and hey, right. you can only hit the ball hard on the ground off of Logan Webb. I don't know if tonight is the night uh, for that to turn around. So the Jays struggled to hit yesterday. Boba with the three hits. Nobody able to drive him or anyone else in. And it gives Kevin Gosman a loss. And I know we're past, you know, blaming pitchers for their losses and looking at the win-loss record all that much. But it did kind of, you know, put a a slight damper on what was a really special night for Kevin Gosman. Uh, 12 strikeouts to to just one walk. And he hits 1,500 career strikeouts. Ben Wagner and I on the call were looking up some of the, you know, historic Jays numbers in terms of, hey, this guy has a lot of double-digit strikeout nights already, and it's only A.J. Burnett and Roger Clemens ahead of him, similar to how we just talked about with, with Bo, and I, at the risk of being overly positive after a 3 nothing loss, um, how special ha- have you felt, you know, getting to cover Kevin Gosman start after start so far this season where, you know, the bar seems to just keep getting higher for him from a yeah. strikeout perspective? You know, I find him fascinating to cover, and I have from day one last year, because how many starting pitchers are as reliant on two pitches as he is? And I know he has a slider, and he throw, you know, he throws the slider to righties, and he actually threw a couple to left to a lefty. I can't remember who it was last Jock night. Peterson. But, uh, that's right, Jock Peterson got you know, and it worked well for him. So, but you know, really, he's as dependent on two pitches 
as any as any quality starting pitcher in the game. And he'll have that one, you know, every eight or nine starts. Hey, they're taking it. Are they on to him? Are they just seeing it well? Yeah, you know, it's always a chess match. It's all and, and last night the adjustment was okay, boys, here's the fastball. And they were taking the fastball. Or he had that great velocity, extra days rest. He was getting swings and misses on the fastball. So to me, you know, every start that he makes is like um, it, it, it's like watching a Netflix series and you can't wait for the next episode. You know what I mean? Like there's always something new to dissect uh, coming out of a Kevin Gosman start because he can thrive in different ways. Um, obviously he's smart. Obviously he's competitive. Thank goodness. He's been as healthy as he's been. And, and he's having one of the best runs in recent memory for a blue Jay starting pitcher. It, it's kind of a crime between the historically bad, uh, batted ball luck hmm. last year and the really bad run support this year, which I don't think was great last year either. And again, you're right. We're way past wins being a meaningful stat, but I, I think, you know, John Q public should think this guy's even better than they think he is because he is. And, and, um, he, he should go to the all-star game. He's only been once in his career. Shouldn't say only he's been once in his career. That was two years ago with the giants and he didn't pitch in the game. He deserves the chance to go to the game and pitch in the game. Um, and, you know, you, you want to talk about where would they be without this guy? I mean, he and Bichette are clearly the two most valuable players, the Blue, and I think the two most valuable players. I put Chapman up there, too, even though he's really cooled off because of what he did in April when other guys were struggling and because of the defense. But, you know, Bichette and Gosman have been huge for for this team. Um, and it's it's fun to watch. You know, they could have signed – a few different guys, one of them being Robbie Ray. And, um, you know, the Blue Jays are very fortunate that Kevin Gosman uh, wanted their offer, agreed to their offer. They'd always seemed interested in him. And, boy, he looks like a guy who, you know, he, he's 32 and he's got a lot of miles on him. But he looks like a guy who's going to hold up very, very well into his mid-30s. And I, I love the element of, even if it's not, you know, strictly getting better from a stuff perspective that learning how teams are going to anticipate the book on you and kind of turning it on its head and doing something different. Um, you know, we, we can look ahead to the playoffs if the blue Jays are going to make it. And I think that's an important uh, skill to have then as well. Kevin Gosman's numbers, Dan might be even better if he didn't have to pitch on not short rest, but normal rest without the extra day of rest as often as he has. Um, the numbers, I, I mentioned them when I was speaking with Keegan a little earlier. There are about three runs of ERA and, you know, the, the strikeout the walk goes from about three to one to almost 13 to one. It's pretty striking. And obviously he's being asked to do that because the Jays are operating a four-man rotation right now. We're going to see a bullpen day today. Um Your confidence level in Alec Manoa being able to return to this rotation Anytime soon, I, I'm sh- sure took a hit yesterday with 11 earned runs over two and two thirds down in a Florida coastly game. Uh, at what point do you think the Blue Jays need to think about addressing that fifth starter spot as if Alec Manoa might not be back until much later this year versus, right. hey, maybe he could come back after the all-star break? So let me jump back to that sure. fifth spot, that bullpen spot, if you will. So as you said, it looks like it'll be Trevor Richards' bullpen game today. But as far uh, as, as – so then, let's see, that's uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. They should be able to use the big four, if you will. So Gosman, uh, I think I guess that means Kikuchi pitches on Canada Day and then Gosman on Sunday. But they'll need another start from that mm-hmm. bullpen group 
um, either in Chicago or Detroit, probably in Chicago. They've got an off day, so they can manipulate it a little bit, but they're going to need one more of those before the break. Um, I'll be very honest with you. When, when Manoa was sent down and he was sent to the Florida Complex League, I did not think he was coming back soon. I think the Blue Jays made a statement in where they sent him how seriously they are taking this. Uh, they could have sent him to Buffalo, which wouldn't have been the right choice. They could have sent him to Dunedin. They sent him as far away from you know the spotlight and the scrutiny and the media and everything else as they could. They sent him to the lab for a few times. And I'm sure you've talked about the numbers. The numbers were horrific yesterday um, in, his, in his start. Now, I didn't see the game. And John Schneider, you know, tried to put a, a positive spin on things about the process and the velocity and the tempo and, and things like that. But, you know, he gave up, uh, ten, I can't remember if it was 10 or 11 runs in two and two thirds against 18 and 19 year olds. It's not where you want to be. Um, I don't think he's coming back anytime soon. All of the will he start candidate candidate talk was nonsensical. I mean, that was never going to happen, in my opinion. I don't think he's coming back right after the All-Star break. I think when they get to the All-Star break, Blake, I think that's when they start seriously looking at how far away could Hyunjin Ryu be, and it's a could. You can't count on it. And or do they have to go out and make a trade? Uh, I I really think they're at that point right now, unfortunately. I, I don't think you can depend on Alec Manila coming back, and they need wins. Um, so I, I think they've got to plug the spot if they can. But I, I would bet you day by day, turn by turn, more and more people are focusing on Ryu and saying, okay, how's he really doing? And how quickly can we build him up? And what can we realistically expect from him? And I don't have any of the answers there, right? Coming, you know, a guy in his mid-30s coming off Tommy John, how do you know? But I think they've got to be taking a very serious look at that. And if they don't think that is viable, then I think you got to go out and contemplate a trade. The problem with the trade is starting pitching is expensive. The Blue Jays system isn't great. And if you do make a trade and then Ryu does come back, now you got six starters, and you know that's a better problem to have, obviously, too many than too few. But I think this is, this is quite a pickle. And, and it's, you know, whoever could have seen it being like this, even if there was a significant amount of regression from Manoa, if he was a four ERA guy this year, they'd have – three, four more wins, right? The, his spot, I think, is 4-11 and 11 or something like that. Four, I can't remember exactly. But, um, you know, even if he was average and they were a 500 team in his starts, they'd have 46 or 47 wins instead of 43. Like, it, this, the scoring position thing and this spot in the rotation, yeah, in my opinion, are the two things that have hurt the club the most during the season so far. And it's, it's almost an impossible thing to plan for because look the starting rotation depth should have been stronger because you have to plan for hey someone's going to get hurt at some point or or, you know you didn't know if Kikuchi was going to be this level of Kikuchi but the specifics around Manoa it has there is literally no precedent for it in the history of baseball a sport where there is a historical precedent for everything um, except for Shohei Otani and Alec Manoa that's it Um, Dan quickly before I let you go we got to do one quick Canada basketball thing Uh, I know you're a big Canada basketball basketball fan would, yeah. <laughs> yeah well hey look i'll sprinkle in a positive first really good game from the canada u19 boys today uh to qualify for the quarterfinals a big win including a, a nice performance from elijah fisher who has obviously had so, some tough bumps on the developmental road at the senior men's national team though nick nurse is out 
as head coach as he focuses on his new job with the Philadelphia 76ers. Jordy Fernandez is in, who the Raptors were fairly down the line with. He has experience in Spain's national program coming up as a Spanish coach um, with the U19 program and just in that kind of basketball education system in general. And then as a lead assistant under Mike Brown with the Nigerian team, um, how are you feeling kind of, I don't know, 16 hours here after the news kind of caught us off guard a little bit yesterday before the game. Yeah. So I think it's great. Obviously Canada basketball had a heads up on this and Jordy Fernandez was put in place. Like imagine if yesterday's announcement was just, yeah, Nick Nurse can't, Nick Nurse can't coach in uh, in the World Cup. That would have, I mean, you want to talk about all of the old, uh, here we go again, all that kind of stuff coming back. But I think the fact that obviously they had some lead time and they've gotten somebody who appears to be a very qualified candidate. He's got NBA experience. He's got international experience. That's great. He was an assistant with the Denver Nuggets. Oh, isn't that nice? Now he's not anymore, but as you know, he was. That doesn't necessarily mean Jamal Murray is playing, but I am told that Jamal Murray thinks very highly of Jordy Fernandez, so that's great. Um, It doesn't – I don't think this craters anything. I don't think this creates new cracks in the ice, if you will. I want to believe from, you know, the meeting they had, was it last summer in Vegas, and, you know, the story's been told, right? And and, um, I I think they've got a good central group that is really – committed and and it starts with Shea Gilgis Alexander and I think he's got a lot of gravitas with this group his cousin among them uh, and others and I still think we're going to see good representation I don't think this is going to be one of these teams with four or five NBA guys I don't know how you feel I think it's going to be more like nine or ten NBA guys and if it's if that's what they get that team is good enough to to qualify for the Olympics I, I you know the U.S. has already announced its roster uh, I would imagine Canada's is coming in the next few weeks. At time, I mean, training camp starts. What is it? August first, somewhere around there. Yeah, or so July thirty first. Whatever July 31st. that week is. Yeah. Right. So we're barely a month away from that. So um, I think they got a really good guy from everything I know. Um, the two Nates are still there in place. That's great. That's some consistency. And now it's just about you know who commits and and gelling. And and this is one of these times where as long a lead up as it is, maybe it's good that they have the training camp. And then I think they're going to Spain and Germany. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Like, you're right. So this is a long run. Like they're not, Hey, nice to meet you. And let's go play a game three days later. They're going to play six or seven exhibition games against really good competition. I- I'm feeling okay, to be honest with you. And, and, you know, I've been there with some other people over the years going, Oh, here we go again. <laughs> but, but I'm, I'm feeling okay about this. And, and uh, listen, the, the proofs in the pudding will find out when, uh, you know, who walks in the gym on July 31st, but I think it's going to be okay. Yeah. And I, I do wonder too, with that long lead time ahead of the tournament and the extra games in Spain and Germany that are so important. We we've seen in yeah. years past, how much the lack of exhibition games and prep time has hurt Canada at times. But I do wonder with a guy like Jamal Murray, is that even an opportunity of like, Hey man, we don't want to make this a standard for the program, but you're coming off an NBA championship it's cool if you miss a part of this ramp up because you're Jamal Murray. Um, But yeah, we should get a roster in in the next little bit. Hey, there's a big event Canada basketball and sports center doing that starts in a, in a little over a week called global jam. Maybe we could all weave it in there and uh, a Blake Murphy, Dan Schulman roster reveal or something like that. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Uh, That that, that would be nice. It's there. There are some good things. There are some good things going on uh, on a number of levels. You know, 
that people see above the water, but it's also happening below the water. Too, it feels like they're they're in a stable place and they've got some really good leadership and and it's not just a team anymore. It feels like more of a you know to borrow a college basketball term, it feels like more of a program than a team. You know, I, I think I think the consistency, the continuity, the loyalty, the desire to to be there is is improving. Um, now that having been said, boy, they got to get it done in the World Cup because you do not want to mess around with one of those last chance tournaments next year. Who you know, you could be playing in in Turkey, uh, in, in Turkey, or in New Zealand, or in you know Venezuela. Like you have no idea where you might be playing. So as you and I well know, and I think as basketball fans across the country are going to become acutely aware in a couple of months. And it's funny, I've got buddies who are huge basketball fans, more NBA guys. They don't even know the World Cup has come. They don't even know it exists. But as you know, when it starts, it's going to be a big deal. And boy, oh boy, oh boy, it's time. They 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 got to do it. Just got to do it. They have to. I'm done with. I'm done with the last chance qualifiers. I don't. Yeah, I mean, yeah. obviously, I would tune in, but right now, I'm saying no. I'm done. I won't. Yeah. I can't go through that uh, again. And Dan, you and I will continue to tee up uh, that World Cup with all the games uh, on Sportsnet as well when that gets rolling. Dan Schulman, thanks so much for taking the time out this morning. All right, Blake, you got it. See you down at the ballpark. Dan Schulman, voice of the Blue Jays on Sportsnet and maybe one of the best people to talk about Canada basketball with. Uh, We will get back to baseball with Eno Saris of The Athletic after the break. If you are hungry for even more baseball today, you're going to want to tune in to Blair and Barker. Um, They're in their usual 5-7 to slot, and at 5.30, Blue Jays EVP and general manager Ross Atkins will join Blair and Barker. So that'll be a big one. I'm sure there will be a good amount of talk about Alec Manoa and where the plan goes from here and what possible contingency plans are uh, for the Blue Jays. So again, Ross Atkins around 5.30 tonight uh, on Blair and Barker. So keep an ear out for that. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Eno Saris of The Athletic joins us on Jays Talk Plus on Sportsnet 590 The Fan and Sportsnet 360. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That's a song called Beers Alone Again by Jeff Rosenstock. Uh, No beers alone when you're with this guy. It's Eno Saris of The Athletic. Eno, first of all, a happy belated birthday. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. How you doing, man? I, I know it's been uh it's been a busy stretch for you. You're down in you're you're in the Bay Area, so there's been the Oakland stuff going on with the you know, the reverse boycott and things like that. The San Francisco Giants are one of the most interesting teams in the league. You've got your pitching stuff at the Athletic. How how you been doing? Good. I mean that week with the reverse boycott was not a fun week. Uh it just was one of the weirdest games I've ever been to with uh, just the widest range of emotions. I can't imagine another game like that. I mean, there was anger and sadness. Uh, you know, the votes are starting to go and seem like, you know, it seems much more likely they're going to Vegas. And so there's sadness, there's anger at the, at the owners and, uh, and yet a little bit of happiness. Like we're here together, maybe one last time, uh, you know, filling the stadium. It was a, 
you know, 90% capacity or so. And um, I don't know, it was, uh, it was one of the weirdest games I've ever been to, but it really stuck with me all week and uh, left mostly a negative feeling, especially since fans at the end were so angry. They threw beers on the field. And uh, I felt bad about that too, because it's not <laughs> John Fisher cleaning up the beers. It's the staff, you know, but it was just a, a weird week. Well, and you as baseball's foremost beersman, you, you can't abide by beer being wasted <laughs> either, right? Um, so uh, another uh, weird and negative situation going on here in Toronto. You wrote about it a little bit for The Athletic yesterday. Alec Manoa with a, we can't even call it regression this year. He, he has been so far from the player who was third in American League Cy Young voting last year so much so that the blue jays eventually make the extreme move of optioning him to the minors but not optioning him to triple a or single a all the way down to the florida complex league he throws in a couple simulated games you know and then yesterday makes his first appearance in an actual game gives up 11 earned runs over two and two-thirds innings i know none of us saw that we can't just scout the stat line etc but 11 earned runs over two and two-thirds innings against florida complex league competition stands out. Uh, what have you made of the entire Alec Manoa situation? And did that change at all with yesterday's kind of exclamation point? Uh, I can't say that I'm not at all influenced by what happened yesterday, but the one thing that I would say um, about what has happened is that it's not, I think as drastic a, you know, one year to one year thing. If you look all the way back to his debut, and in fact, even in his debut season, and you just basically, if you anchor, you know, his first five starts in the big leagues and you say, okay, this is what he could look like. And then you look at his movement and velo on his pitches since those first five starts, it's just been going down. And I don't know if that was just, you know, adrenaline. Uh, maybe he was healthy then. He hasn't, he hasn't been healthy since or something, but if you just look at the velo on his fastball, it's down, you know, like maybe a tick and a half, two ticks from his debut. Uh, if you look at the velo on the slider, it's down, you know, like two ticks from his debut. If you look at the lateral movement on his slider, it's down two plus inches since his debut. So, you know, he's a guy who lives in, and breathes on that slider and uh, to lose sideways movement on it makes it a much more conventional sli slider. Um, and it's not one that he throws like 88 or 89. It's not one that goes on velo. It's, but, you know, velo is still important to it, but it's a shape thing. It's like a two-plane breaker. It's a really big slider, and it's not been as big. And that, that was true last year, um, and I think in some cases it's sort of the chickens coming home to roost this year. Um, and so the, the, the effort has to go back two years. It's not like just can he be what he was last year. He kind of has to go all the way back to his debut and be that guy. So I think it's going to take some work. And the reason he's down at the complex league is because they have the pitching lab there. They can do, uh, you know, pitching lab stuff, pitch design. I think maybe some conditioning needs to happen. Like there's, there's a lot of stuff that needs to happen. So I'm a little surprised to hear that, that start that he threw is not a start where he was like, I have to throw the slider 15 times and I have to throw, you know, there's a lot of times when, when a guy's just working on stuff in the minors and he's supposed to throw, you know, fastball slider, fastball slider in, in a certain row or do whatever in a certain row. That wasn't the case. 
that start that he had was just a regular start. They said, go out there and have a regular start. So that's a little concerning for me. But I do think the road to here has been a long one, and the road back will be a long one. I'm not sure it's going to happen this year. Yeah, the road back is a and you know, it's not – if he were – over 30, you'd say maybe you're just not going to get the velo back. You're not going to get the break back. He is 25. He is, a, you know, by all accounts, a, a hard worker and things like that. So maybe there is uh, a road back, even if it's one that requires patience. Um, you know, and not to put you on the spot with, with a tough question, but is there... Like when you think about this, whether it's, you know, looking at at some of the stuff plus ups and downs and the pitch shape ups and downs that you've seen in your years covering the game or just, you know, thinking on it. Is there a precedent for this? Because like on a on a raw like guy goes from Cy Young votes to not even good at at, like not even effective at the Florida complexly. There is no precedent. There's nothing even remotely close. Um, When you go through this, are there precedents for, hey, a guy lost a little bit of his slider shape, lost a couple ticks of velocity, but you can get that back over a, a window of time? Yes. There is a precedent, and I wish I had the document open right now, but I know that I looked, and I found basically uh, eight guys that, you know, lost as much on their stuff plus just sort of sums up how good your slider is by velo and movement and stuff. So, you know, had lost as much on their slider from year to year, and four of them got it back. So about half the guys got it back. But the nice thing, uh, I guess, is that the younger guys, uh, we're more likely to get it back. Um, the the asterisk there is that, you know, even among those younger guys who got it back, I think a couple of them were injured. So, um, you know, I just wonder, I wonder if there's an injury there. Or, um, and that's why I also point to conditioning because he, I mean, he, I think he looks a little bit bigger than he used to. And I wouldn't necessarily point to that, you know, with David Wells or CC Sabathia or whatever, um, you know, there are guys who pitch fine uh, who are bigger, but if he is bigger than he used to be and now he's having these issues, then maybe there is a conditioning uh, as- aspect to this. So, you know, I'm not trying, <laughs> I'm not trying to body shame anyone. I'm just trying to like sort of pick up the clues as to what is different from when he debuted, you know? Yeah. And that could affect your mechanics as well, right? Just the way your, your body works and everything. Um, so as it, as it pertains to Alec Manoa's path back, um, I know that we don't have, the requisite data for what you do with, um, you know, stuff plus and location plus uh, at every level of the minors. Can you get anything at all out of looking at, Hey, what's his next Florida complex league or or single a Dunedin start look like or anything like that? Or we just like, as analysts, you just kind of have to wait and see until he he's a little closer to the major league level again. Yeah, they, you know, I the AAA now has some movement. Um, I don't know if he's ever going to uh, pitch in AAA on the way back, but um, I doubt we'll get movement numbers on this rehab situation. Um, and so, yeah, we're left. Uh, I think the the easiest way to to watch is to watch his strikeout rates. Um, it's uh, strikeout rate is a super powerful stat, and it just tells you. He's getting guys to swing and miss, you know, and so uh, hopefully in the next game, even if he gives up a few runs, he strikes out more guys than he throws in things, you know. Uh, that's something that I would look for, and I think that's uh, one of the few things we can come on to, unless they, you know, unless they release some 
fastball velo or, you know, when I see you, unless they leak some, you know, slider movement data, you know, Hey, they know where to leak it. I'm right here. I've got two <laughs> hours of data fill. I'll do a whole segment reading out the pitch readings from every Alec Manoa pitch if they want. Um, so, you know, the, the Jays have kept their heads above water here, despite the Alec Manoa stuff. They're not, they're not playing as well as, you know, most people had hoped of course, but, Working with a four-man rotation in the odd bullpen day, they they have survived. Kevin Gosman had a terrific start yesterday. Yusei Kikuchi and Jose Brios have both been better than last year. Jose Brios, someone that I believe Stuff Plus had maintained some confidence in. Um, what have you made of the rest of the Blue Jays rotation and, and how they've been able to execute in this kind of higher stress, higher leverage situation? Yeah, it's been great to see uh, Barrios get it together. Um, you know, he has, uh, you know, in some ways he's a blueprint for uh, Manoa because he has that excellent, excellent breaking ball. And uh, for him, it's about placing all the rest of the pitches around that. And, um, and, and you know, it's some call it pitching backwards or whatever, but it's, you know, the, the thing about pitching is that to never be predictable. And uh, if you've got that great breaking ball, you gotta you gotta show it sometimes, and you gotta hide it sometimes. You gotta show other pitches. So he's doing a good job of that. Chris Bassett is a master of that. None of his pitches register above 100 uh, on Stuff Plus, so they're all below average, but they're all near average. And he's got more pitches than anybody else in baseball. No other pitcher throws seven pitches more than three percent of the time, and Chris Bassett does that. So. You know, you know, there's some guile. There's some excellent pitches. There's uh, with Kevin Gossman. There's guile, excellent pitches, stuff, location, everything. You know, so you've got an ace. You've got you know three other guys. I'd hoped at this point that you know, like Ricky Tiedemann would be ready to step into the into the rotation, um, and that Mitch White would be pitching a little bit better, so that you could kind of have. You know, your fifth starter would either be, you know, the, the capable veteran, more veteran-y Mitch White, or, or you'd have Ricky Tiedemann to step in and, um, and give you something extra. That could still happen. We've still got more time. I think, you know, Tiedemann's going to get healthy and, you know, maybe be able to pitch, uh, you know, for the Jays this year. Or maybe they just, uh, they fudge it for the fifth side. I'm not hearing the Giants. Uh, they have, like, a bullpen, <laughs> bullpen game every week, you know. I mean, they... The one thing the Giants do have that the Jays don't have, I think, is the Giants have like three guys who can go three or four innings in Sean Manaya and uh, Ross Stripling and uh, Sean Hagelli. They've got a bunch of guys who can go like three or four innings. I wonder if the Jays, you know, in sort of thinking of the trade deadline and what they could add, instead of trying to spend a lot to get, you know, Lucas Giolito, you know, um, or one of these rental, you know, front end starters or whatever, if they could identify somebody that isn't pitching as well, but if you said, Hey, if we took that guy and they're running him out for six innings and we just ran him out there for three innings, you know, or four innings, could we get more out of him? Um, and sort of mimic a little bit of that. They don't necessarily, if they get to a playoff series, they don't necessarily need another starting pitcher. I think. Right. That makes it's sense. More about, getting to the playoff series. So I would say if they could just find a, a back end arm that can help them get there and help them win some of those fifth days, 
uh, that would be big for them. Yeah. Got to get there first, though, and they're half a game out right now with uh, a little over half a season to go. A couple quick ones for you, you know, before we let you go. Uh, Matt Waldron threw a knuckleball the other day. Have you started work on a stuff plus for a knuckleball? Uh, and how the heck would that even work? Yeah. Uh, you know, the funniest thing about the knuckleball is that it, on any given pitch, it will move. I think this is a misconception about a knuckleball. Like it does move conventionally. It doesn't necessarily, you know, defy the laws of physics, but the thing is you, it never moves the same every time. So you, when you look, when you're, when you're the batter in there, you can't predict the shape it's going to be. It's like somebody like Bassett or something who throws, but even more, it's like someone who throws 15 different pitch types. And they just throw it out there, and even the pitcher himself doesn't know exactly what's <laughs> going to happen. You know, so the hitter is kind of like, I have no idea what this pitch is going to do. Um, so I think modeling that will be kind of difficult. Um, and it hasn't been in the game too, so it has the model has nothing to point to to say, you know, this this can this will act like the the previous knuckleballs that have been in the model. Well, there's nothing. Yeah, and there's nothing to. There's also no. I don't know. There's just nothing. There's not a lot uh, at all. Um, last one for you. I know you talked about it on the Rates and Barrel uh, podcast recently, talking about some uh, you know project prospect. Paul Skeens is going to be probably the number one pick coming out of LSU this year. How excited are you? Obviously, we can we can hear the scouting reports. We can watch the games. But you to get some kind of AAA and MLB level data on him and say, hey, just how just how well does this guy compare and how quick could he maybe get to the majors? Yeah, I'm really interested because he does throw a, a two-seamer, mm-hmm. and the, the model doesn't really love two-seamers, but he throws it wicked hard, and uh, it has two-plane movement. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited to see that. There's also He's also at the center of a little bit of a mini-controversy. Um, he's thrown a lot of pitches, and so has uh, Stanford starter Quinn Matthews. He threw 150 in one start. Um, and... Uh, I do know one, uh, you know, analyst, team analyst, who told me that uh, number of pitches per start was a major um, number in his appraisal of uh, college arms, um, and that uh, it really did have a link to uh, major league injuries. So, um, you know, that's going to be something that. Uh, you know, the team that drafts him is going to think about, but they're going to, they're going to say, well, I hope it doesn't matter for him because <laughs> he's going, you know, in the top three or four in the draft at least. Yeah. That'll be uh it'll be fun to watch it. And hopefully that arm is in ice and bubble wrap between now and whenever he makes his uh, pro level <laughs> debut, uh, you know, Sarah's of the athletic. Thanks so much for taking the time out this morning, man. All right. Thanks for having me. Eno Saris of The Athletic. You can check out all his great work there. Had a little piece on Alec Manoa yesterday. Um, always worth checking in on his monthly updates on things like Stuff Plus and Pitching Plus. It's a pitch modeling metric that has done a, a really good job, better than um, you know things like fielding independent pitching and, and some other component metrics in terms of predicting future performance. Uh, and yeah, that cuts two ways. It might say, yeah, Manoa's due for some regression. This might not be great, but it also might say, hey, Keep your faith in Jose Brio. So uh, sometimes those things are positive. Sometimes those things are negative. They do not care about which direction and how we feel uh, about it.
Another guy those metrics love and should continue to love is Logan Webb. He'll start tonight for the San Francisco Giants. The absolute quick scouting report on him is he doesn't walk anybody, and it's very, very difficult to put the ball in the air with authority against him. He has a 62% ground ball rate and a minuscule 5% walk rate. Going to be a tough one for the Blue Jays. It was tough yesterday against the bullpen day. 17 strikeouts a season high, one for 12 with runners in scoring position, bunch of runners stranded. Uh, the test on paper is much more difficult today. We'll see how that actually plays out against Logan Webb. Blue Jays going with a bullpen day on the other side. We assume headlined by Trevor Richards since that's been the case. Uh, Trent Thornton's pretty fresh. Bowden Francis is pretty fresh. Mitch White only threw seven pitches yesterday. Uh, we th- we think Jimmy Garcia is available. He was available emergency situation yesterday. So uh, more on that to come through today. Blair and Barker with you five to seven, including an appearance around 530 by Ross Atkins. So you'll definitely want to tune into that. Blair and Barker will be back for you uh, with Jay's talk post game as well. We'll be back at 10 a.m. tomorrow. Thank you to Eno, Susan Keegan, and Dan Schulman for coming on. We'll talk to you at 10 a.m. tomorrow on Sportsnet 590, The Fan, and Sportsnet 360.